Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Ben Kasnoka is an entrepreneur and co-founder of Village Global, a Silicon Valley venture capital firm that has funded hundreds of startups. He's the co-author with LinkedIn co-founder Reed Hoffman of The Startup of You, Adapt, Take Risks, Grow Your Network, and Transform Your Career. He's also the co-author of The Alliance, Managing Talent in the Network Age, also with Reed Hoffman, and entrepreneur Chris Yeh. He delivers keynote speeches on business and globalization and has appeared on CBS's The Early Show, CNN, CNBC, and others. He started and scaled several ventures, including an e-government software company, Comkate, that currently delivers hosted CRM solutions to hundreds of local governments in America, an online education business, and a top-tier boutique management training business. He is also one of the most connected and networked entrepreneurs out of Silicon Valley, rubbing shoulders with some of the most successful founders and CEOs. In this podcast, he shares his view on what the future of work will look like and why embracing randomness and building your network will become ever more important. Why we should stop thinking of employees as family or free agents, but rather as allies on a tour of duty. Whether we are experiencing today a true shift in the nature of the employer-employee contract or whether the pendulum will swing back, ladies and gentlemen, Ben Kasnoka. Well, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to be here to talk with us. Great to be here, Kyan. So I start all of my interviews with the same question. If you could complete this for me, just so we can get to know you a little bit more personally. If you really know me, you know that. If you really knew me, you know that I'm extremely intellectually curious. I have so many different interests, and that's one reason why I've ended up in venture capital, because it allows me to meet all different types of people all around the world. Beautiful. And you jump between venture capital and writing and go back and forth. Excellent. So because your interests are so broad, strategy is one part of your many interests, but strategy is in a lot of what you do, picking companies and defining strategies for careers. So what's your definition of strategy? Well, I don't think there's any one definition that's necessarily universal, but the way I think about strategy is it's the set of techniques that one employs in conditions of great uncertainty. So strategy is the thing that you draw upon as you're swashbuckling your way through a dense forest trying to get to the other side. And there's a lot of unknown, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of competition, rocks, boulders everywhere. And so strategy is the playbook to help you navigate those sorts of situations. Love it. Love it. And I can see how you applied strategy to careers in this tumultuous career environment, if you will. Can we talk a little bit about the startup of you? What's the core premise of the startup of you? What I hear from it is everyone's really an entrepreneur. Exactly. Our basic thesis, my co-author and I, Reid Hoffman and I, argue that in the modern economy, everybody has to think about their career as if it was a little startup of one. So you may not be the CEO of your own company. You might be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a strategist, a middle manager. You might work in any number of different industries, or you might be running your own company. But regardless, you're always the CEO of at least one thing, and that is your career. And you have to approach your career as if it were a startup. And our argument in our book, The Startup Review, is that if you study what world-class entrepreneurs do to build incredible startups and distill their best practices, their wisdom, you can apply those very things to your career. So how entrepreneurs adapt their businesses in the face of competition, how entrepreneurs build competitive advantages for their companies, how they take intelligent risk, how they build networks around themselves, how they build a brand and market themselves. All of those techniques have some applicability to the career landscape. And so we think it's a really rich catalog of strategies and principles and techniques that we can all 
all benefit from. And so if you want to transform your career, if you want to get ahead, if you want to get a promotion, you want to reach the top of your industry, we think it's wise to study some of these entrepreneurial techniques. Got it. You know, I was looking a while ago at the history of work, and in the 1920s in the United States, only 10% of people actually had jobs. By the 1950s, 90% of people had jobs. And now what I'm getting from you is that the nature of work or dynamics, there are some drivers that are changing that are making it important for us to be more entrepreneurial again. What's changing? Well, anyone listening to this can reflect, like, do you think the world's getting slower, easier to understand, more straightforward, or the opposite? Most of us, as we live our lives, as we read the news, as we engage in our industries, we recognize that there's just tremendous change all around us. That could be technological change, cultural change, globalization, geopolitical change, etc. I mean, the world is not a static place. I'm a student of Buddhism, and Buddhism sometimes is summarized in two words. Everything changes. That's the essence of Buddhism and the Buddhist technique. And I think it's a deep, deep truth that we all need to wrestle with. And so everything is indeed changing in our industry and in the world of work at large. You know, the number one career book of all time is this book called What Color Is Your Parachute? What Color Is Your Parachute still sells hundreds of thousands of copies a year. It's kind of wild. So we always think of them as Coca-Cola, Startup U as Pepsi. We're not yet Coke, but it's a good drink. And I think, of course, biased that it has a more relevant playbook because some of the old career guides presumed a more static world. It presumed an economy in which if you went to school, got a degree, landed an entry-level job at a big, stable company, that company would take care of you. That company would groom you. You could graduate your way to a company-paid pension plan or a government-financed retirement system. And those days are over. It's a new world. It's much harder today to be a successful professional. Nothing's guaranteed. No matter how old you are, if you're trying to get ahead, it's a harder economy than the ones our parents or grandparents had. And so we think that demands a new playbook. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And things even changed, I would imagine, from the time that you wrote the first edition and to the time you wrote this revised and updated edition. I actually just looked at the subtitles. The original title was Adapt to the Future, Invest in Yourself, and Transform Your Career. The revised subtitle is Adapt, Take Risks, Grow Your Network, and Transform Your Career. So you added Take Risks and Grow Your Network to this. Yeah, a lot has changed, Kion, in 10 years. You know, the first edition of Startup View came out in 2012. The reason that Reed and I did a new edition is because the word Uber does not appear in the first edition of the book. The gig economy did not exist. And we think about something that's so fundamental to the modern career landscape. We talked in the first edition about black swans and the potential for seismic change in the economy. And of course, in the new edition, we can talk about those incredible weeks in March 2020, in which tens of millions of people were instantly out of work or had no job or entire industries shut down. And so I think there's so much now to talk about in this post-COVID economy about just how real so many of these theoretical concepts, in fact, are. And take risks and grow your network remain two of the centerpiece concepts of this framework. Entrepreneurs, when they create startups, of course, they take risks. They're not reckless risk takers. It's a common misperception about entrepreneurs that they max out the credit cards and bet the farm. Smart entrepreneurs, when they create a company, they take reasonable risks. And so too must we all in our careers. And so we talk about how to assess risk and how to find misperceived risks in the career marketplace and then grow your network. Again, a misconception about entrepreneurship is that startup entrepreneurs are these solo heroes. You know, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, they can just do it all themselves. When in fact, if you were to say one thing about Musk or one thing about Jobs, it'd be their ability to recruit a team around them. And so it's a really fundamental concept for all of us to learn. And it's not necessarily a novel concept. We've all heard about the importance of networking, but drawing upon, you know, Reed's experience of starting LinkedIn in his living room about 20 years ago in Mountain View, California, and all that we've learned helping now hundreds of thousands of people think about networks. We write a lot about how to build a network to support your deepest career aspirations in this crazy age. Yes. Talk to me about that recruiting people because what I read also into some of your writing and some of the podcasts I listen to is that leadership today is 
more about creating followers rather than formal authority or, you know, you get leadership through creating followership. Is that a theme? It's definitely a theme. And I think it's a theme of the modern economy is leading through influence and especially young people today in the workplace, as all the managers and executives listening to this know, they're not very keen on being told what to do. They're not very keen on being told that you just need to put your head down and earn your stripes, right? A common question that we get from execs around managing startup of you style employees. In other words, imagine if you had an employee that showed up to your workplace, having read the startup of you and said, I want to take risks. I want to grow my network. I want to build my personal brand. I want to adapt. I want to get ahead. Help me do that. You have to meet them where they are and they're not going to be responsive to a kind of authoritarian approach. Our book that we wrote is a follow-up to Startup U called The Alliance, which is really a guide for managers and how to have better career conversations and master the employer-employee relationship. We advise managers and CEOs and execs and strategy officers and the rest to try to form a mutually beneficial alliance. Try to form a relationship with your employees in which you commit to investing in them. You commit to helping them realize their career ambitions, helping them grow their network and all the rest. If they commit to investing in the company for a meaningful period of time, what we coined a tour of duty, right? If they commit to doing a tour of duty at the company for two to four years, you invest in them, they invest in you, you have some predictability, you have some reliability in their relationship, and then maybe the employee leaves and they're not going to spend their entire life at your company and that's okay. It's just one example of how to approach these startup review style employees. It does demand a different managerial approach, we think. Yeah, yeah. Taking that and then more broadly, what are the implications for a company in how they engage or hire or manage or retain talent? Well, I think you have to rethink your employee value proposition almost entirely. And so instead of offering promises of stability to your employees, you have to offer the promise of career transformation. So what the very best people want, and to be sure, there are variations and motivations across the workforce, but I'm talking about the most talented employees that you want to recruit into your business, right? The people who have multiple offers, et cetera, they are by and large looking for growth opportunity. They're looking to be able to embody the infinite learner mentality that we talked about in Startup Review. They want to live, as we call it in Startup you in permanent beta, right? Always growing, always improving, always learning. That's their mentality. And so the value proposition as an employer has to be to offer that. And the reason why so many companies and managers hesitate to invest in their employees today is because they're worried that they're going to invest in the employees going to leave, or they're going to invest in the employee. And then they're going to, after a year and a half, demand a promotion, demand to be vice president, or they're going to leave something like that. And so you have to speak really in plain and direct terms about what the expectations of their relationship are. But we believe, and we've worked with and internal at LinkedIn and lots of other companies, We believe that you could establish a framework where if you tell the employee that you will invest in them in very concrete ways and they commit to investing in you and they're open and transparent about their long-term career aspirations, even if that means leaving your company someday, those sorts of conversations can lead to a much healthier, more constructive employer-employee relationship. Yeah, I do see at the more senior levels, right? The CEO in enterprises, at least CEO is really doing a tour of duty. They're in a company for three to five years, and then they go take leadership of another company. And a lot of our chief strategy officers also move around between that role, between different companies. I don't know if it's a norm, but it's more normal, I guess. It's more normal today. Yeah. The average tenure is shrinking among super high talented folks. And so as a manager and leader yourself, what do you do about that? You can ignore that reality. You can deny it. You can talk about it, or you can do, you know, what 
LinkedIn, the CTO of Microsoft today, Kevin Scott, when he was CTO of LinkedIn, he used to ask job candidates when he was interviewing them, what job do you want to have after you leave LinkedIn? He hadn't even extended an offer yet. They hadn't even started at the company, but he just knew that it's unlikely that their deepest career aspiration for the rest of their freaking life was to work at LinkedIn, right? That's very uncommon. And so to be able to access and understand what someone really wants to do long-term in life, in as much as they know that, we don't all know that. Sometimes some of us have great uncertainty about our long-term aspiration. But if somebody has a goal, I want to start my own company someday. I want to be CTO of the company myself. My goal is to have your job, right? If you can unlock that from them in an open and honest and high trust conversation, you can be so much more effective at defining a tour of duty that is beneficial to them, beneficial to the company and has some predictability around the timeline. Now I see the Buddhist link that you're describing here, right? That your career is in constant transition, which can be unsettling. The Buddha said that all phenomena in the world have three characteristics, that they're unsatisfactory, they're impermanent, and they're not connected to any permanent self. And the idea of impermanence and Nietzsche in the language of the Buddha is just so profound. And we all have to reckon with that deep truth, the impermanence of every experience, every thought, and of course, life itself. Yes, yes. But naturally, we want not change. We're in deep, deep denial, right? And teachers have taught me that it's not enough just to intellectually know this concept. You can read it in a book, but that comes as knowledge, not wisdom. To really understand these concepts requires something far more experiential. And you have to live and notice the impermanence in your life to really understand it, they would argue. Yes, 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 absolutely. So speaking about non-permanence, and this isn't something that we set up ahead of time, so I don't know if you'll have an opinion or thought about this, but right now, every company that I come in contact with, one of their top 10 issues is talent, retaining talent. And pre-COVID, the balance of power was very different. And so my question is, if right now the balance of power is such that employees have more bargaining power than they did before, is that a new normal or is the pendulum going to swing back? Any thoughts on that? I think it's likely the new normal among the most elite part of the workforce, in part because what the internet has enabled is a great rebalancing of information and leverage. So frankly, platforms like LinkedIn, products like Blind, these other services, Glassdoor, addresses the information asymmetry that for so long defined the employer-employee relationship. But today, if you're a talented person, you can be recruited more easily by any number of companies. You can connect with existing employees, former employees, prospective employees, and trade notes on comp and the rest. You can establish a personal brand that is bigger than any one employer that you work for. And so I think we're in an age in which the rise of the individual, in which individuals have this incredible leverage in the labor market. And I think that will persist for a very long time. I think that's okay. I think the question, if you're a company, if you're a head of strategy or head of HR today at a company, you have to ask yourself, are you going to demand loyalty of the old school variety? Like, you're a company man, a company woman, you work for me, you should be so grateful for a job, I'll give you permission to leave, etc. Or are you going to reckon with this new reality and try to make the most of it? You know, my friend David Gellis, who writes for the New York Times, who wrote Corner Office for the New York Times for many years, and now he's on the climate change beat. He has a new book out just this week on Jack Welsh and how Jack Welsh wrote capitalism. One of the arguments that Jack Welsh made when he was CEO of GE is he said, hey, in this new world, everybody has to have one day contracts. Like, if you don't prove yourself every single day, you're out of a job. Because that's how he was trying to grapple with this world 
world. And what we argue in the startup review and the alliance is that's actually a mistaken response to this reality. It's understandable response. Like we've gone from companies of family, loyalty for life, company man, company woman, and a lot of CEOs in the well share said, okay, I'm going to minimize the employer-employee relationship and basically stop investing in my people, treat them as mercenaries and fire them the day they stop delivering value. That's no good, right? People don't do their best work if they're scared of being laid off at any moment, right? People don't do their best work if they're in a one-day contract. So the question is, is there some middle ground between lifelong family-style employment and Jack Welch-style one-day contracts? And that's what we call an alliance that's characterized and choreographed via tours of duty. There's so much there. Yeah, I think part of it is that theory of the firm that you're in an area of access to easy career information. You know what the market rate is for you. You know what your best alternative to a negotiated agreement is, right? So companies can't take advantage of that information asymmetry. That's fast. I hadn't thought about that factor. Yeah. And then we see emerge very different organization, even like DAOs and kind of like communities of workers and things like that to create that sense of permanence. Yeah. People are trying all sorts of things and the very nature of the company and organization is evolving. And we have a tremendous number of 1099 people in America today, right? Who don't even want full-time work. One of the new terms in the new edition of the Startup Review, we introduced the concept of portfolio careers because we realized that in the last 10 years, there's so many people who don't just have one job. Their career is stitching together different. A lot of writers and speakers and consultants run this at the high end and at the low end, you know, it's gig workers and everywhere in between. And so people are stitching together, kind of braiding the modern career together in a way that's very different than the 40 hour a week company man. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Can you talk to me a little bit? You have several ports in your book where you talk about luck and creating of luck. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we talk about strategic serendipity. I mean, one of the things that's key, I think, to remember about game-changing career opportunities is that they don't just float in the sky randomly. They're always attached to a person. Any opportunity that you want in your career that you aspire for is going to be related to some human being. And so to think about serendipity, to think about luck, to think about breakout opportunities, you're really thinking about your network. When Reed started LinkedIn, the way people thought about careers was it's something you think about when you're changing jobs. Like you update your resume when you're looking for a new job. And the profound thing that LinkedIn established that now seems normal, but it was not obvious when the company was started was that your career is something you think about all the time. You should be actually updating your resume when you're not looking for a job. That's why the company is so valuable. It's like you have a database of resumes that's being updated 24-7 people who are not looking for a job. That creates the whole passive recruiting economy, which is a total game changer. But the reason you update your resume when you're not looking for a job, the reason you use platforms like LinkedIn, etc., is to connect with your network when you're looking for new tactical opportunities when you're looking for advice or guidance or insight, what we in the book call network intelligence. So if you're trying to increase the amount of luck or serendipity in your life, what does that mean practically? It means how do you bump into the right nodes of your network in interesting ways? And so one of the things I came to the view of after COVID, because a lot of people in the Bay Area had sort of moved you know, to Idaho and these other places or out in Napa, you know, outside of the major metro areas, but they still wanted to connect with their networks. And so my theory is that events and gatherings and conferences are going to be even more important as we seek that in-person connectivity with folks, but we don't necessarily all want to live in expensive places like New York or San Francisco. And so I've been spending a lot more time thinking about how to gather my network episodically throughout the year in an in-person venue, just to make sure I don't miss out on the serendipity that I used to get by just having 10 coffee meetings a week, you know, in the Bay Area. Now with my network scattered out, you have to find different ways of organizing and engaging with your network. 
Yeah. 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 That makes a ton of sense. I have so many more questions about the book, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. And I want to make sure that we also hear a little bit about your entrepreneurial career and what you're doing with Village Global. But let's start with what put you on the path of entrepreneurship. Was there someone or something that gave you the idea to choose that? I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, but it was sort of unexpected. My parents were not entrepreneurs. I had a teacher in school when I was 12 years old who forced me to memorize Apple computers, think different television advertisement when I was 12 years old. So I memorized the think different advertisement. If you haven't seen it, go on YouTube search Apple computer think different. What are the first few lines just so we can remember it? The people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. It's an incredible 60 second ad. You can check it out on YouTube, but I was forced to memorize that ad. And ever since doing that, he told me, if you want to change the world, be an entrepreneur. He said, many people complain about their problems, but entrepreneurs do something about problems in the world. So that set me on a path. And I've been entrepreneuring ever since in different ways. And then now writing books like Startup View and the Alliance. And then you know, more recently in the last four or five years, I helped start an early stage venture capital firm called Village Global. So what we're doing is investing in the very best founders that we can find anywhere in the world who are trying to build massive multi-billion dollar businesses. And so we kind of have a unique strategy around doing that, but it's kind of a new chapter of my life. Fascinating. I'm some big, big founders are associated part of that network, right? Yeah, we tried to work with some of the most successful entrepreneurs of today who are interested in backing the next wave of founders. And so we find that intergenerational connection between people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and the young 22-year-old who wants to be the next Jeff Bezos, that's a really powerful link. And so that's what we try to cultivate in our village community. I love it. Love it. Again, so much more to talk about, but I want to just know what are you working on now and how can people continue to learn from you and follow you? You can check out my website, kaznoko.com. You can learn more about Startup U at startupu.com. And if you are starting a company that aspires to be venture scale and you're looking to raise the financing, just check us out at villageglobal.vc. Great. And follow you on LinkedIn as well, I would assume. Indeed, indeed. All right, well, Ben, thank you so much for the work you do and for sharing it with us. Thanks so much, Kaya. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.